I have uh, I've stopped trying to figure out the youthful mind. <clears throat> it's been too long since I've had one. Many young people have bizarre ways that seem to lack solid and logical rationale, as, for example, the way they keep their room. Okay, notice this. Messy, unorganized, chaotic are words that come immediately to mind. And the fact that this is the criticism of most parents would suggest that this is epidemic among young people. As if they all get together on social media and plan this out, plan the way they're going to keep their room. I cannot be sure of that, but what I do know is that a messy, unorganized, chaotic room is often indicative of the lifestyle of the one who occupies it. Someone who has little time to make his own bed will founder in the important details of his life. And when clothes pile up instead of being hung up and corners of the room are not cleaned regularly and pieces of food have fallen into hidden places, the room has a a whole or takes on a whole new scent uh, to it, an unpleasant odor. It has uninvited guests with six legs that come and scavenge, and the whole place looks like a disaster area and is quite unhealthy. A few day, a few sprays of some air freshener won't solve the problem. Cannot help, I think, but scratch when you think about this whole scene. And I use this scene to illustrate the way that sound churches can get when they are not diligent about maintaining the health of their church body. They can mask the decline well enough with act, activities of service to one another, lively uh, fellowship gatherings, meeting the felt needs of people who just want to be accepted and not judged or held accountable. But those acts are not what keeps the church healthy, and if that's all the church has, they are no more effective in promoting health and orderliness than the piles of clothes, unswept corners, and uh, insect-infected rugs of a youth's room. Soon it becomes spiritually unsightly and it stinks. What maintains the spiritual health of the church and will produce the right kinds of fellowship and one-anothering and orderliness that is characteristic of, of, of a healthy church is the regular teaching and proclamation of sound doctrine. It is hard enough to keep at this in, in our present climate, I think, that rejects hard work and responsibility and discipline, but it's near impossible, or so it seems, when the church is infected with false teaching and false teachers. This morning we learn that there are times in the Christian life when we have to take a hard line with those who pose a dangerous threat to the Word of God and to His church. Jesus certainly did. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that Jesus cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Here Jesus will present the church to himself in a pure, holy, and blameless state at the close of history in heaven, and he will accomplish that in large part by the agency of his word. His word has spiritual cleansing power. That is a necessary part of this spiritual process of cleansing. 
We're not surprised then that Jesus would insist that the church not tolerate false teachers, those who tamper with his word and consequently with this process. The Lord himself is intolerant of them and expects the saints to drive them out of their midst that they might exert their harmful influence, so they wouldn't exert their harmful influence on them. Now, intolerance is an important side of our Lord that many in the church seem to be unaware of. He warned the the disciples on one occasion in Matthew 16, verses 11 and 12, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And speaking of the teaching of the false teachers in Matthew 7:15 he said beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves now what force do you suppose this warning has for us when jesus tells us to beware what does that entail how about looking out for them and and don't go near them or stay as far away as, poss- as you possibly can from them. And if they're found among us, expose them for what they are, as you would a, a contaminant in your food supply. The implication behind being alert is also avoidance and expulsion. Perhaps some of Jesus' strongest words on this issue are in Revelation 2, Let me read just a portion of that which we read in our scripture this morning. It is to the church of Pergamum. In verses 14 to 16, Jesus said, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Strong words indeed. If what Jesus has against them is that they have false teachers there, then the obvious response is to repent and then get them out, right? There can be no doubt that Jesus calls the Pergamum church to repent and that that means not only that they should put an end to the destructive heresy that they have allowed to be taught there, but also to no longer tolerate the heretics that brought the heresies, put them out of the company of the saints, have nothing whatsoever to do with them. Same implication exists in the situation with the church of Thyatira. Reading on a little bit further, verses 20 to, uh, uh, to, uh, to 22, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality And they eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, this is a great example of how the church can appear loving 
and faithful to people, excel in all kinds of human services, yet at the same time tolerate false teachers and their destructive heresies. That just goes to show you that the loving, community-like atmosphere where everyone feels welcome and all are helping out each other is not what constitutes a faithful church. Hmm, what then? Well, her doctrine, that's what. How can a church display righteous activity without right doctrine, you may think? Well, they cannot. They can display counterfeit righteous activity, which I think was going on at Thyatira. The acts of love and faithfulness of Thyatira were not the outgrowth of sound doctrine. They were empty of substance. Only when such acts are the outgrowth of sound doctrine can they be considered genuine acts of love and faithfulness. But more to the point, it's obvious that repentance in this passage has, at the very least, stopping, to, stop tolerating false teachers and get them out. And we have to take Jesus' warnings to us of those who might confuse us or draw us away from the truth seriously. And as the go-ahead to get rid of such people. In case there's any doubt, the Apostle John certainly understood the Lord's warning this way. He was so disturbed over the false teachers who started infiltrating the churches in Asia Minor, his congregations, in his name, that he warns them, do not take them into your house or show them hospitality. It was actually a, a serious thing in the ancient Near East. In the first century, hospitality was hard to find. Paul shares this posture as well. In Romans six seventeen, he commands the true believers, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances hindrances contrary to my teaching and turn away from them. 2 Timothy 3.5, he puts it this way, avoid such people as these. And we find the exact same posture from Paul in his letter to the Galatians. He's indignant that the Judaizers were hindering them from obeying the truth. He uses the familiar phrase of Jesus in chapter 5, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough that they needed to cleanse themselves from this leaven is obvious. But now we're in chapter 4. We're looking at verses 21 to 31. Find your way there if you haven't already. But here we find the same exhortation to cast out the false teachers as well. And I would put the main idea of that passage this way. Scripture, which is our authoritative word for understanding and dealing with error, proves the gospel to be so distinct from all other worldviews, both in nature and its relation to them, as to be incompatible with them, and therefore demands that we repudiate them and their practitioners who bring them into the church. That is a mouthful. Hopefully it makes sense. We're going to open it up uh, as we go now and the first thing we want to point out from verse 21 is that Scripture is our authoritative word for understanding and dealing with error. It is our authoritative word. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you, do you l not listen to the law? 
Now, the word law in this verse is broader than the Ten, than the ten Commandments. Sometimes law in the New Testament refers at, at, to the entire Old Testament and other times to smaller sections of it, such as the Ten Commandments. In our context, it refers to the Pentateuch, specifically Genesis. And before we look at this Genesis text, we should acknowledge the fact that Paul goes to Scripture for at least two good reasons. One is the fact that there is no other place to go to iron out the truth about life and godliness. Where else can you go? Scripture is God's inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word. It's absolute, unchangeable, unalterable, authoritative. It's our rule for faith and practice and our only means of godliness, a true light to our path and a lamp to our feet. It informs our epistemology, how I know what I know to be true about anything in life. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me. Now, the other reason Paul retreats to Scripture is because the Galatians have been hoodwinked by the Judaizers into thinking that salvation is by adherence to the law, as you know. And part of the Judaizers' deceptive strategy was to take advantage of the scriptural ignorance of the Galatians and try and prove their position with Scripture. The Galatians would never know that the Judaizers were misinterpreting it. We've already seen how Paul has called them on their faulty interpretation before. And he does so again right here. He obviously found out that these shysters were abusing the Scripture in order to lend an air of authority to their teaching. Now, I digress for just a moment here to make a strong plug for being good interpreters of our Bibles and knowing our doctrine cold. I think, number one, we need to know how to interpret the Bible correctly because people can make the Bible say anything they want it to say by wrenching verses out of context. Entire cults have built, are built on this strategy. Some of them, like the Jehovah's Witness, even have their own version of the Bible to support their belief system. A version, of course, that is based on a faulty hermeneutic. And those who know just enough about the Bible to be dangerous and are good communicators, oh, they can be very believable. And we must be good students of our Bibles. Number two, I would say, because the Word is our only source of absolute truth and guide to living like Christ, Satan will tamper by means of false teachers in order to mislead us. He will tamper with it by this means. There's nothing worse than believing that what you're doing is what God would have you to do when, in fact, it is, exa- it is exactly the opposite. Well, getting back to Paul's retreat to Scripture then, he poses this question in verse 21 that is obviously rhetorical in order to expose the Galatians' wrong application of the law, courtesy of their false teachers. You can hear the challenging tone in his voice. Tell me, he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to what the law says? Now, this would catch anyone off guard Who claims to found his belief system on something foreign like the law? And you can imagine what some of the Galatians must have thought in hearing this very question. Oh no, what's he mean? 
Does he know something we don't? Are, are we missing something? We could do, we would do well, I think, to use rhetorical devices like this in our counseling with people. Don't be afraid to ask these kinds of rhetorical questions. Here's the force of it. Essentially, Paul says, okay, you want to talk about law? Let's talk about law. That's my specialty. And this is one of those roll-up-your-sleeve moments and get serious for the apostle. Uh, there's a, a bit, I, th- I think, of accusation in this question as if to say, I don't, I don't think you really know what the law says. You might think you do, but I can assure you, you have missed it. So what does Paul have to say to them? Well, we come to verses 22 and 23, and he explains this, that Scripture proves that the gospel differs in nature from every works-based belief system there is. It differs by nature. In the context of the Galatians, their works-based belief system was a mixture of Judaism and Christianity, which was not Christianity, but a deceptive and damning hybrid. And as we've maintained throughout the study of Galatians, the Judaizers believed that attaining and maintaining one's salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ plus adherence to the law. And a modern example of this, of course, would be the Roman Catholic Church, who teaches faith in Christ plus the sacraments. Paul takes the Galatians back to the Old Testament Scripture to show them that this view is completely wrong. And it's the opinion, by the way, of most commentators that Paul used the exact same text in Genesis that the Judaizers used to support their view. It's a familiar story of Abraham and his wife and their son Isaac, and Abraham and his maid Hagar and their son Ishmael. It would seem that the Judaizers saw Hagar and her son, both outcasts, as representing paganism and associated all Gentiles with them, while they saw Sarah and Isaac as representing the true people of God and, of course, associated Judaism with them. Now, as you know, there's a kernel of truth in all heresy. That's what makes heresy more appealing and more dangerous. And it's a fact that the more truth that's mingled with heresy, the more dangerous it becomes. So while the Judaizers were not wrong to see Hagar as representative of the world's way and Sarah representative of God's way, their associations were wrong, very wrong. They associated themselves with God's way and everyone else with the world's way, including Paul. And Paul makes some major adjustments to this spiritual analogy of theirs, and he sets the record straight. He begins by showing first that being associated with Abraham's faith does not rest in being a physical descendant, right? Remember, Abraham had two biological sons, but only one was considered to be his rightful heir. Why? Well, the answer has to do with the nature of their births. The nature of their births were very different. Verse 22 says that one was a was a slave woman who, uh, or a slave woman, and one was a free woman. Hagar was the slave girl whom Abraham acquired most likely when he was in Egypt and became 
his housemaid, and by contrast, Sarah was Abraham's wife and very much a free woman. These two women could not have been more different, socially speaking, so the status of their sons was socially opposite to begin with. But the difference goes much deeper than a social status. Verse 23 reveals the nature of this difference is in the births themselves. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. There it is. Please notice the contrast in verse 23 is not between slave and free, it's between flesh and promise. Do you see that? Ishmael, who was born to the slave woman, was born according to the flesh, whereas Isaac, born to the free woman, was born according to the promise. Now, by, by flesh and promise, Paul does not mean that Ishmael was conceived the old-fashioned way, while Isaac was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the same way that Jesus was. No. Isaac was, uh, was every bit Abraham's biological son as Ishmael was. Rather, flesh and promise have to do with the context out of which both were conceived. Contexts which were different by nature. Ishmael was born out of fleshly, sinful motivations and the will and might of Abraham himself. If you know the story, you know that God promises Abraham and Sarah a son, a son of promise, whose line would produce Messiah. They received this promise then, uh, when they were still able to have children, even though Sarah was barren. But years hence, Abraham being 86, Sarah being 76, and still without a child, got very nervous. Time's fast running out for them. Sarah suggests to Abraham that he resort to a well-known and usual practice of building a family in the ancient Near East when couples couldn't produce biological children together. The husband would take his wife's handmaid as a kind of surrogate so that he would have an heir. That was acceptable. Abraham listened to his wife and did just what, uh, did, did just that with her, uh, with her handmaid, Hagar. The first mistake Abraham made then was to listen to his wife instead of rest in God's promise. The second mistake was that his biological son came by his own will and might, not by faith in God's promise. It was as if Abraham reasoned, well, God promised me a son, but I don't have one yet, and I'm not getting any younger. I had better help this along and secure a son in the, in the only way I know how, and that will be that. That Ishmael was born according to the flesh means that he was the product of Abraham's own effort to secure what only God could do. He made a sinful, illegitimate, and failed attempt to make an heir that God could bless. And God told him so. Abraham demonstrated a lack of trust in God's promise at this point, and he was no doubt reminded of this when God fulfilled his promise. God purposely waited until after the elderly couple was past the age of childbearing to accomplish this, because it would be by his might 
alone, the salvation of many through a child of promise. He would show his people that Messiah would come from a line that began with an elderly, helpless, infertile couple, the wife of whom was barren in addition. God does this. He does it this way to demonstrate that he alone is building a people for himself by his will, his might, with no help from human effort at all. Human will and might are completely out of the equation. And once the couple realized this, God supernaturally enabled them to have Isaac, the old-fashioned way. Therefore, the son from a slave represents Abraham's failed attempt to realize the promise and secure an heir by human strength and ingenuity, while the son from the free woman represents God's supernatural work in the lives of the couple that was absolutely necessary if they would realize the promise and have an heir. The heir of salvation comes only by God's work, not by human effort. After Paul explains this to the, uh, to the Galatians, he applies this to their context and shows them that their status as heirs of salvation is by God's work and grace alone, which demands faith. And the Judaizers' gospel of law is nothing more than a sinful, illegitimate attempt to obtain God's promise by human strength and effort. So Hagar and Ishmael truly represent the Judaizers and their self-willed attempt to work their way to heaven. And Sarah and Isaac truly represent all saints who've become true heirs of God by faith in the work of Messiah alone, the son of promise. You see that? What a powerful description of the Genesis account. But Paul doesn't stop with this. No, in verses 24 to 27, he explains the exact same truth with different figures, ones that the Judaizers themselves also used. And as a result, the Galatians would have been familiar with these terms. And before we consider it, I I just want to say that Paul is such a good teacher by making a second pass at explaining this material in other words. And that is the mark of a good teacher explaining to students in several different ways so as to, to be helpful and instructive. Let me show you how Paul does it here in verses 24 and 25. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically, that is spiritually, symbolically, perhaps is the best word. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Paul says that he is speaking symbolically, as the Judaizers had. But what, he, but what they saw Hagar and Sarah being symbolic of demonstrates their mishandling of Scripture and their inability to apply it correctly. Paul shows that Hagar is not only representative of Abraham's sinful motivation and human strength and effort to accomplish what only God could or can, but she's also representative of Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is code 
for the Ten Commandments, since God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. So Paul has already proved by this point in his letter that the Jews adopted the law as an impossible, slavish means to secure their salvation instead of trusting in the future work of God's promised Messiah. And maybe you can see then the connection here. Hagar represents Sinai, which represents the bondage of the law and one's attempt to work one's way to heaven by it. Paul finishes that line of reasoning off by pointing to the earthly Jerusalem of his day, which was not only the home of the Judaizers, but actually the epitome of their workspace salvation. Jerusalem was the bastion of Judaism in Paul's day. Now, by contrast and by implication, Paul explains what Sarah symbolizes in verses 26 and 27. But the Jerusalem above, Paul says, is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The barren, desolate one is obviously Sarah, who represents heavenly Jerusalem. That is, heaven itself. The earthly Jerusalem, just as the earthly tabernacle, was to be a copy, a representation of heaven itself. But it failed. So the realm of heaven, which Paul calls the Jerusalem above, is the epitome and bastion of free grace. And it's occupied by those who have been born there, born from there, born from above, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The scriptures support this description of the heavenly Jerusalem with the prediction that the barren woman who, by God's strength and grace, will produce more important sons. Well, we see then in verses 21 to 27 that the context out of which these two children were born proves that they are by nature completely opposite. One represents man's way and will and might, and the other represents God's way and will and might, which is the only way to eternal life and a great inheritance. And having established that, Paul now shows that because these two children differ from each other, by nature, they are not compatible with each other. Scripture proves that the gospel is incompatible with every works-based belief system. Verses 27 and 28. What do we mean by this? Simply that there is a natural and undeniable incompatibility that exists between God's special revelation, the Bible, and all other worldviews and belief systems that will inevitably manifest itself. And that is to say, all human belief systems without exception, all philosophies of life, bar none, all ideologies of human wisdom, compete with the Bible and in an antagonistic way, I might add, 
as in the example of the relationship between Ishmael and Isaac. Listen to Paul's application of this spiritual lesson for the Galatians. Verses 28 and 29. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. In the Genesis account, Sarah saw something that might not be so obvious to us from the Genesis account, but the implication is certainly there since Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, draws the implication here. And what is that? It is that Ishmael, who was a good 14 years older than Isaac, would eventually become a threat to him as heir of the promise. Paul understood the Genesis account this way and interprets Ishmael's actions even then and his gestures toward Isaac as threatening and persecutory. In other words, Ishmael persecuted Isaac and that was bound to happen. Why? Because the two came from two entirely different contexts. One that was representative of human will and spirit and the other out of submission to divine authority and faith in divine promise. There is no reason to believe that these two could ever be and live compatibly with each other or that the slave brother would not persecute the free brother. Paul connects then the Galatians with Isaac, children of the promise, because they came to trust Messiah by faith alone. And in the same way that Ishmael, the son of slavery, who represents a work-based gospel, persecuted the son of promise, so the Judaizers, who are of the same stock as Ishmael, persecuted the Galatians, and the Galatians gave in. They gave in. We shouldn't fail to make the connection in our day. Secular ideologies and belief systems, world views, have no partnership with God's word or any place in the church, none whatsoever. But I know of instances all the time where the church maintains a healthy relationship between secular worldview and the faith. No, you don't. There is no such relationship. What ha what's happened is that in that instance, people made the scripture compatible with secular ideology. Scripture is incompatible with all secular belief systems. It will either cancel them out or it will become subservient to them. In that case, then, cease to be scripture. And that is the important lesson for us. We do not dare integrate Scripture with anything else. It's unnecessary and it's sinful. Either the Scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness or they're not. You choose. But you choose wisely. So if you're not firmly grounded in the Scripture and give in to any kind of integration, well, then you will succeed only in watering down the Scripture. The Scripture at that point becomes a sinful admixture. We must stand on Scripture alone, beloved. Our epistemology must be Scripture alone. The particular truth, this particular truth is so vital not only to our sanctification but also to our evangelism. It is Scripture or is it something else on which our gospel stands? 
Scripture plus anything else will not do. And as I mentioned, it's nothing more than a, a damning hybrid. And that would also include leaving out important information from the gospel message as well. The Judaizers added works to the gospel, as many today do, but many others today also tend to leave important elements out of their presentation of the gospel in order to ensure that those hearing it will receive it well. We know this is happening in so-called Christian churches all over our country, and in that case, what their audiences are receiving well is not the gospel. What have we said so far? We've made the case that Scripture is by nature different from all other secular worldviews and therefore naturally incompatible with them. If that's true, and it is, then what's our responsibility to Scripture and to those whom we must teach and proclaim it? I would argue from verses 30 to 31 that scripture demands that we repudiate any teaching and any teacher of a false gospel. Now that Paul has exposed the Judaizers' gospel of law as false and shown it to be quite incompatible with the gospel of grace, he calls the Galatians to cast out the false teaching and the false teachers. He says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but also, but of the free woman. Now, since Paul's talking symbolically here, we would see the application of this symbolic or symbolism working out in the world's religious systems, persecuting the pure gospel of grace. That's been the story of God's people throughout church history. The world persecuted us because of our stance on God's truth. If you've ever wondered why that's the case, I can tell you on the strength of this passage that it's because the scripture is different by nature than any other worldview. The nature of scripture, especially the gospel, and all other messages of salvation out there are necessarily opposed to each other and therefore, the scripture will incur their inevitable persecution unless it's purposely made to conform with them. It's going to be either one or the other. The application for the Galatians should have been plain to them. And if it's not plain to you, then understand what Paul is driving at. God commands us in situations where error creeps into the church and threatens the pure milk of the word to expose it and get rid of it. To me, it's very clear, beloved. There is no question that God calls us to cast out those things of the flesh that promise only bondage and undermine the th and threaten the freedom of in Christ, our promise of sonship and a great inheritance since we are children of promise and not of slavery. Well, I want to make just three quick applications here. Number one, if members of the church are involved in heretical practices, believe in, in heresy or teach heresy in some form or fashion, they obviously are not heretics, but they need correction. A person can, or a believer can, teach heresy from 
time to time or in a season and, and, and not be a true heretic. And we have to help them see the era in which they are involved and turn from it, repent, and put on truth in its place. That would be our responsibility to them. If a member refuses to listen, of course, then church discipline is necessary. And we may find that the one we remove from membership stays away until he repents. Now, this is rather um, an, a, 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 an exceptional case. Ordinarily, we don't prevent members under discipline from attending services. In fact, it's really the best place for them to be, sitting under the word, under the conviction of the word. But in cases that involve heresy, their attendance must be at the discretion of leadership. Since, since the consequences of such a sin can have profound impacts on the body of Christ. Paul spoke of false teaching as gangrene. It has the potential to spread and kill. And with those who profess Christ but are not members of our church, well, if we discover that they are in some way characterized by heresy, either in their views or their behavior, and refuse to repent, we would ask them to leave and not return until they convince us that they have repented of their heretical views. It is that serious. Number two, when it comes to any famous Christian personality out there in the universal body of Christ that we listen to, we must scrutinize their message all the more in these last days as more of them have either fallen away from the faith or have compromised sound doctrine. No matter how their message comes to you, podcasts, conferences, publications, should you discover that their message is unbiblical or, or even destructive, according to Ephesians 5.11, you should have no part with it and expose them to all your Christian friends, both inside and outside the church, your church. The Greek word translated expose in Ephesians 5.11 means to show where these views are wrong and censor them. That's such a hard line. Yes, it is. And we would expect nothing less from the Lord and from his people. Number three, and finally, we should scrutinize our own thinking, always measuring it up with the standard of Scripture to make sure that we're not adding or taking away from God's word, whether it's the gospel or any other part of his truth, when it comes to making disciples, when it comes to growing ourselves and making disciples, it's easy to do. It can be out of ignorance that we fall into this, in which case we need to study. It could be out of fear of man that we do this, in which case we need to repent and speak truth in love and leave the consequences of that with God. hard line for difficult times may God bless our efforts Father we do thank you for this word this morning from Galatians a rather sobering word which we know is not popular today in many churches in America people are not 
are not given to intolerance. They are taught to respect all views and welcome them as equal. But, oh, Father, we know that there is only one absolute standard, and it is your truth. And that is the only word that we want to fill our minds with and that we want to chew on and apply when it comes to life and godliness. Help us, we pray, to be more scrutinizing. Help us to pr- that, that, we are, that we are more discerning of our surroundings and the things that we hear. We pray that we would find ourselves more in the word, more in the truth, bathing ourselves there, washing ourselves with, with your principles, that we might clearly and easily be able to distinguish the difference between good and evil. For your glory, for your honor, and also for the benefit of your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.